Good morning, I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're just visiting with us, joining us for the first time, welcome. We are glad that you're here with us. You're here as we begin a new series, uh, and we will be in the book of 2 Corinthians. For these next five or six weeks, uh, for the remainder of my time with you, we'll be looking at um, several passages in, in the early chapters of 2 Corinthians. You might have seen the title of the series in your bulletin, The Sufficiency of God. And the idea of the sufficiency of God is much on Paul's mind as he wrote the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, in this book, you have Paul, who is a church planter, uh, writing to a church that he was trying to encourage, the church in Corinth. Uh, and he speaks of many of his struggles uh, as a church planter, as a minister of the gospel. And he speaks to a church that has troubles of its own as a congregation that's seeking to follow God. For both Paul speaking to them and for this congregation, they are together people who need a God who is sufficient to meet them and whatever life brings their way. So that's much on Paul's mind uh, in this book. And that's what we'll be looking at over these next number of weeks. Talking about what it means to trust this sufficient God. What it means for us uh, to, to lean our full weight on him. And to know that he has us. So let's pray together and we'll come to our text here in 2 Corinthians 1. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would open up your word to us this morning, that by your Spirit you would open our eyes, unplug our ears, and thaw out our hearts that we might hear you. Would you do your good work in us? Would you have your way with us? We ask this in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus. Amen. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 11. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 964. 2 Corinthians 1. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. In this series, we're talking about the sufficiency of God. And um, in this passage this morning, we see Paul speaking to us about the comfort of God. Bringing up this question uh, really for us, 
that underlies that idea of comfort and receiving comfort. And the question is this, is God sufficient for the suffering, for the tragedy, for the sadness of my life, of my soul? Can he really meet me? Can he really meet us in the places where we most desperately need him? As we open here in this passage, we see Paul at at some of his finest in in working practical theology uh, as he teaches us, rooting us in who God is and what that does for us as we seek uh, him in the midst of struggles. He has a practical theology for us this morning, a practical theology of comfort, that he is the God of all comfort. So we're going to see that in three ways here, or or what Paul would exhort us to as we look at God's comfort calls us to own the struggle, to wait for God, and to share with others. Those three things. Own the struggle, wait for God, and share with others. First, own the struggle. As Paul is writing to uh, these people in Corinth, uh, he is writing in in the midst of of controversy. He has uh, had some painful exchanges of letters with them, and what he refers to later in the, in the letter as a painful visit to them. There was sin in the congregation that was not being dealt with, and Paul had to come and, and speak to them about dealing in a biblical way with what was going on in their midst. And it caused a lot of dissension, which was beginning to die down. But in the context of this letter to the Corinthians, he is still addressing the fact that there are some who are critical of Paul because he has suffered so much that they look at Paul and they look at the struggles of his ministry and in their minds they say, you know, you know, look at what Paul is going through and has gone through. He can't really be an apostle. He can't really be a follower of Jesus. He can't really be a teacher that we have to listen to because of look at how much he has struggled. He gets into this very directly later in the book, starting in chapter 10. That's where, where he brings up this background. But that, that's, that's the background to his writing to them, that there are those that would challenge that Paul is someone they should listen to because he has suffered. So what's Paul going to do in the midst of that? You've got people saying, he's not a real apostle. Look at how much he's suffered. He had one choice, uh, and, and the one that many in power in our world certainly go to first. Let's do damage control. Let's, let's spin this somehow. You know, I, I know you've, you've, you've heard about my struggles with the churches, but they really weren't all that. Uh, you know, you heard about me being put in prison. It was, it was really just a misunderstanding. Uh, you know, the lashes that I received, um, you know, uh, they, they didn't use the leather whip. They used the, you know, whatever we, that we can somehow spin and soften it. He doesn't go in that direction. He says, in fact, he goes beyond it. He says, he says no, it was, it was that bad and even worse. You see, he begins to speak to them honestly about his own struggles. And in this way, 2 Corinthians is one of his most personal letters as he speaks of his own struggles that he has undergone in following Jesus in this world. He talks in verses 4 through 7 here, he talks about afflictions and suffering. If you just look down at those verses, you'll see how many times in the, in the space of a few short verses he uses those words again and again. The afflictions, the sufferings that he's gone through. Verses 8 through 9, he refers to his suffering and affliction in Asia. He doesn't tell us specifically what was going on, but we know from, his, uh, from the record we have of his church planting in Acts that uh, he was continually being met with resistance as he went from town to town. And sometimes that was from the Roman authorities. Sometimes that was from Jewish leaders in the synagogues. But Paul was continually being opposed in each city that he went to by those who did not want him to preach the gospel. 
Um, and he says when he, when he got into this, specifically this struggle that he had in Asia, look at the words that he uses, how powerfully he comments on his struggle. He says, we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. In other words, he's saying to his critics, you better believe we have suffered. You better believe that has led us right to the very edge of despair. You hear what he says, we thought we were going to die. We despaired of life itself. This is it. This is the end of the mission. It is, it's over. He was in the grips of that kind of fear of death is right around the corner. He goes on other places in 2 Corinthians and speaks about the sufferings that he's gone through. Let me read a few verses for you from uh, chapter 11 as he is speaking in response to his critics and saying, you know, they say this, but here's what I have endured in the gospel. He says that he has had, chapter 11, far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressures on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Do you hear what Paul is saying? Yes, it has been hard. Far from that disqualifying me from the gospel, it actually bears the mark of Christ's ministry. He goes on in chapter 12 in a... a, um, a section that will be familiar to many. He speaks of, goes on to speak of his struggle with something he called a thorn in his flesh, which he does not uh, describe, but he goes on to say that he pleaded with God to take it away. And here's God's response to him. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, underline Paul's understanding of what had been happening to him as a minister and as a follower of Jesus. Central to his theology is that when someone comes to faith in Christ, they are now united to Christ. They're joined to him in this, this living relationship that can now not be broken. And because they are united to Christ, that means that they, in one sense, go where Jesus goes. And he says, look at what happened to our Savior Jesus, who suffered and who died. And Paul says, we will suffer too as we follow Jesus because we are connected, united to Christ. And as we celebrated last week at Easter, the other half of this, our union, our unitedness with Christ, also plays out in that Christ was raised from the dead, and we will be raised too. The death will not ultimately win. But here Paul is speaking of the first half of that equation, that we are united with Christ in his sufferings. In fact, to follow Christ means that 
we will be exposed to sufferings in this broken world. He says that's one of the realities of knowing Jesus. And in the midst of this comment he makes about our struggle, there's this uh, theological gold nugget in here about why God exposes us to struggle and to difficulty. And it comes right in uh, verse 9. He said, Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But here it goes. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Do you hear what he's saying? He said, we, we, we have despaired even of life. He says, I've, I've been through struggle and difficulty one after another in following Christ. And in the midst of that, what does he hold on to? He says, these have happened so that we learn not to rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And not even God necessarily who spares from death, but the God who raises the dead. God wanted Paul to learn, and he wants us to learn, that we cannot rely on ourselves, that we do not have what it takes to follow Jesus, to raise our children, be faithful in our jobs, stand fast in our marriages, to go the distance in this world. He's saying God would have us learn not to rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He's telling them that in all this suffering, he said, I have been learning and you are to learn that God is your final rock on which you stand. It is not up to you. You are to rest on a God who upholds you, that we would learn to rely on God and not ourselves. Now, as he wrestles with these struggles of life and as he presents them to this church and as he defends himself against these charges from others, Paul went in the route of being honest about the struggles of his life. Paul chose not to put on the blinders in one direction or the other. and In one sense, to focus only on his struggles as if that were all there were to tell about his life. And that God's comfort and faithfulness, which we are getting to, were not true. He doesn't go that route. But he also doesn't go the route of shutting out the struggles or denying them. And let me just ask us this. Do you feel that you can be honest about the struggles of your life? And even the difficulty of following Jesus. The hard parts of life where he has you. Those days when you just really don't trust him. The days when you're not sure that he is going to show up. I've had conversations over time with folks that have said something like this. You know, I, I'm concerned, though, about my witness for Jesus. If I talk to other people, especially my friends who are not believers, about the ways I continue to struggle as a Christian, then, then the, the gospel is not going to be very attractive to them. They won't get a sense of the power and goodness of God. In other words... Uh, you, you know, there, there's, there's something right about that, this sense of, like, we want to proclaim God's goodness rightly. But on the other hand, reading between the lines, um, what if I just don't sell this product very well? You know, what if I just don't make this look attractive enough to the world? What if they really saw what it was like? Do you hear the bait and switch of that? Come to Jesus, and he will solve all your problems 
Just kidding. No, he's not. And he didn't. When we come and proclaim the hope of Christ, we proclaim not all the loose ends tied together here and now, not all the difficulty and struggle taken out of life, not all uh, the yearnings and sufferings of life suddenly and absolutely resolved. We proclaim the risen Christ who meets us in the midst of those very struggles, who is doing something, who gives us hope, as we're going to see in a minute, who gives us comfort, and who one day is coming back to bring us home. But we do not proclaim that life is finally fixed here and now. We don't point people or ourselves to one specific tidy result now. We point other people and ourselves to a person, the risen Jesus, who is with us even now. Paul felt like he could be honest about his struggles. In other words, he says, for us to own the struggle. But the second thing we see here is not only that we are to own the struggle, that we are to wait for God. Look at the way this passage opens up and here at the very opening of the letter. Think of all the options Paul had as he speaks in these first couple verses a, a prayer of praise and worship. Of all the different attributes of God that he could choose from, of all the things that he could choose to say to these people about the God in whose hands they rest. He had a Bible full of true things to say of God. What does he choose to say to them? Look with me, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. He begins this passage, he begins this letter with this prayer. He says, this is what I want you to remember about God, that he is the God of mercies, the, God, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. He's the Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we read this in this, this verse, when we see uh, that he's the Father of mercies, this is not, in the Greek, this is not the same word that we usually see in the New Testament for mercy, like showing mercy to someone else, not giving them what they deserve. That, that's, that's a different word that is throughout the New Testament. This is used a few times, and, and maybe a better translation would be something like this, that he is the father of tender compassion. That's what he chose. That's what Paul chose to tell these people about God. Remember our father of tender compassion, our God of all comfort. Paul is setting the tone here about what he wants to say about God. And though Paul believes so strongly in the sovereignty of God, he does not begin with a prayer about the sovereignty of God. Though he believes so strongly in the justice of God, he does not begin speaking of the justice of God. He begins speaking about his God and our God, our Father of mercies and the God of comfort. Let me just ask us this. Is this how you see God? It's just right near the top of the list of how you picture God. Can you pray this prayer along with Paul? See, he is pointing us back to God who has the comfort that we most need. Verse 4, God who comforts us in all our affliction. God's comfort that is meant to embrace, as Paul begins to spill it out here, all of our affliction, all of our sufferings. He says to his suffering people, this is what I want you to remember, that God would comfort you. That he's the God of tender mercies. 
It is one thing to say that. And it's another thing to experience and see it play out in our lives. How, how, how do we experience that? How do we see that of God? How do we see the power of that at work in our life? Well, Paul gives us a couple hints of that. Look at what he says uh, in verse 6. He's speaking of his afflictions and sufferings uh, on their behalf. He says, if, if he and his companions, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Do you hear what he says about the context in which we taste the comfort and the mercy and the sustaining power of God? He says, as you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. And I think what Paul's doing is he is linking in some way God's comfort, which, which can invade us in the darkest moments when we're not even expecting it. There's a range of ways in which God can bring that into our life. But he's, he's narrowing down to one. He's saying that, that, we, that we will know God's comfort as we patiently endure what he has given us in this life. And think about it this way. Have you ever uh, struggled in such a way that that you, at some level, knew that you needed the very comfort of God, and rather than wait for that, you you chose something else to be your comfort? Uh, I I know what it's like... occasionally on, uh, at, the, at the end of a long day to come home and, and just know that what I, what I really need to do is I need to sit down and I need to be quiet and I need to pray and I need to listen to Jesus. Uh, and those days when instead I flip through the mail to find out what Netflix sent next, right? Because I'd rather just tune out for a while. Or maybe you know what it's like uh, to be driving in your car and there's that moment of quiet and it is what you most resist. You turn on the radio to distract and comfort yourself again. Maybe it's reaching for the refrigerator. Maybe it's reaching for a drink. Maybe it's reaching for something online. It could be any way. What ways do we seek? Some sinful, but not all. Some that are okay things but that we choose in a moment to comfort ourselves with that rather than to wait, to patiently endure, that we might know the comfort of our God. In other words, that we might let ourselves for a time be hungry until we see God show up and feed that hunger Himself, whether that be through prayer or Scripture or as we'll see here later, the comfort of another who would bring us the comfort of Christ? Do we wait and let our hunger be filled in that way with real food, or do we grab for something to take away the hunger pains instead? Paul says that we are, that we're to patiently endure, and it's in the context of that enduring that the space opens up for us to know the very comfort of God that would meet us in whatever he brings our way. There's a, um, came across last couple of weeks the, um, the state motto for South Carolina. 
I, I would have loved to have used the state motto for Virginia, which is seek semper tyrannis, thus always to tyrants, but just didn't fit with the sermon. Um, <clears throat> but here is, um, here's the South Carolina state motto. Doom spiro sparrow, while I breathe, I hope. And maybe Paul would put a spin on it like this. While Christ lives, I hope. Because Christ is risen and lives, then I can wait and endure patiently in hope because the God of comfort will come. While I breathe, I hope. While Christ lives, I hope. And it is His comfort that my soul was made for. It is His comfort that I am most hungry for. And so I will wait and wait for that meal and not choose another. Paul speaks to us in this passage and tells us to own the struggle to wait for God. But finally, the thing that we see here is that we're called to share with others. Look at what Paul says again in verse 4 when he speaks about the comfort that he receives. Uh, the Father of mercy is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affli any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He goes on in verse 6. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the sufferings that we suffer. Do you hear what he's saying? That, there, that there's a certain uh, chain of events that happens here. Paul says for himself in his own struggles. God has me here in the midst of patient endurance. He shows up with comfort to, to meet me in the midst of my struggle. But it doesn't stop there. Because he says that very comfort which God has given to Paul, Paul is going to use and spread and bring to the Corinthians to be comfort to them. In other words, Paul says, the very thing that has come and brought life to me, the comfort of God, is meant to go through me to be shared with others as well. And he includes them in this. He says, it is the same for the Corinthians, and it is the same for us. That God is doing actually two things when he comforts us. He is coming to meet us, to bring us life, to bring us hope, to bring us the very warm and tenderly compassionate arms of the Father around us in our struggles. But it does not stop with us. He does that for us also so that we might then be equipped to share that comfort with others. In other words, it's a call to ministry. He says, what has been ministered into you is to be ministered into the lives of the people around you. He comforts us that we might comfort others as well, that we might share with others. Uh, imagine somebody that's good uh, at, at fixing, like a carpenter. You know, some of you guys are... And perhaps women are, are, are great carpenters, and um, uh, I'm only on the very beginning edge of that. If you were to go into my closet where I keep the tools, you'll see we, we sort of got the basics. There's, there's you know, a hammer, a couple screwdrivers, uh, a little power drill, and stuff that needs to happen around the house, uh, it, it's got to fall within a range in which I can use sort of those simple tools. And, and if, if you've had that experience where you need to do something, you don't have the right tool, and option A is just try to make the tool you have work, <laughs> sometimes that works, but it's usually not pretty, right? Well, if you go to somebody's shop who is really a carpenter, you will see that they have hundreds of tools because they know that every situation and every project is a little bit different, and they know that there are those times when you actually need just the right tool, and they have that tool so they can do the right and precise work. 
when you hear a sermon from me or anyone else, you, you are hearing what we, we talk about as being public ministry. You, you hear the Word of God being proclaimed from Scripture. And, and you, you hear it being um, applied in, in some sort of general ways. Now, s- some of you come to me after words sometimes and are like, you, you know, you read my mail this week, how did you know? And that's the power of the Spirit applying that to your life individually. But you know what it's like uh, to sit down, not, not hearing a sermon, but one-on-one with someone else who has the opportunity then not just to speak about some of the grand and big picture of God's love, but to talk about more specifically about how that applies in your life. I've had that opportunity with some of you in my office as you come and we talk about specific situations. And as I've heard your stories, I, you know, I've pulled out the, the tools that I've got. I've got my hammer and a couple of screwdrivers and... Uh, my, my own experience has been shaped and limited in certain ways by God's work in my life. But you see, God doesn't have a small toolbox. He has a very big toolbox. He would use all of us in his ministry into the lives of others. You see, you, he has brought you or is bringing you or one day will bring you through things that are in many ways very unique to your life where he is coming into situations that may be very different than the ones he's brought into my life. Now, those general words of comfort are true. But you know what it's like uh, maybe to sit across the table from someone who comes to you with the hope of Jesus and is able to say, you know, I had cancer too. Or, you know, I had two miscarriages also. Or, I have lost a loved one. Or, I have lost a job. And suddenly, in that moment, you see all those places of pain that you have gone through in life, where along the way you have seen God's comfort come and care for you, are now being put to use as a very specialized tool in the hands of God bringing and working comfort into the life of another. See, Paul says we are not simply consumers of God's comfort. He says we are ministers of his comfort to each other and to the world around us, that he would meet us, God would meet us in our sufferings to comfort us and to use that comfort to be a comfort to others. What affliction, what suffering has God brought you through? Or is he bringing you through right now that he may use one day to comfort others? Maybe that he would use to comfort someone in your family or someone at work or someone in your neighborhood, someone in your small group, someone over dinner with friends from church. Do you see the privilege that God is giving us? That he is inviting us in to be a part of the very work that he is doing in the world as he, the father of tender mercies, of tender, compassionate care, is crafting us to be children of mercy and tender, compassionate care in the lives of others. Paul speaks, and we'll end with this, he speaks a word of hope over these Corinthians who are struggling to learn these things. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. Do you hear what he's saying to this struggling church, these very ordinary believers? What he's saying to us, he says, our our hope for you is unshaken. 
Because you have Christ who has been raised. God is at work and you are in His hands. He is the Father of tender mercies. He is the God of all comfort and He will have His way with us. So Paul can say to them, and he can say to us, that he has great hope, that it is unshaken for us. Do you see, God will be our comfort as well. Will we patiently endure? Will we settle for nothing less? And will we take that comfort and pour it into the lives of others? Let's pray.